Okay, I have the difficulty today of addressing a very hot button, uh, very culturally fired topic. And this is a, a difficult topic to address, especially as you address it to many people, because as you sit there and look back at me, uh, many of you have different thoughts or views about what the Bible might teach about homosexuality. Some of you here are, are committed followers of Jesus Christ and you're, you're sure of what the Bible says about it and you're going to stand firm on it and no compromise. Others are followers of Christ, but who perhaps think that the Bible's teaching is maybe not as clear as one might think on the issues of homosexuality and perhaps we should be listening and being more tolerant or embracing our culture around us. Some of you here today may be struggling with same-sex attraction. Maybe these are unwanted homosexual desires. The world wants you to define yourself by your sexual desires and Bible wants you to define yourself as being a follower of Jesus Christ. Some of you perhaps have embraced same-sex desires. Some of you perhaps may know someone, might have a daughter or a son or a family member who has embraced this lifestyle to embrace homosexuality. And so now you're wondering, um, what to think about this issue. Some of you here today, you're stuck in the middle of this cultural shift. Part of you says we should see homosexuality as a sin and part of you says, well, maybe we should just embrace it. People can just live however they want as long as they don't harm anybody else. It doesn't affect me. And so we should be okay with it. Some might be too afraid to raise any concerns or objections because you're afraid of being labeled intolerant or bigoted or hateful to even ask questions. Some of you might be here today because you cannot believe that there are still people in the world today that are so opposed or that can be opposed to an expression of love between two people. And you're curious to hear how backward uh, logic might be from the scriptures, okay? So as we consider all the kinds of people who may be listening or curious about this, you realize the difficulty of my task and there's many different objections and things that perhaps you've thought of or you've heard from someone else. So just to let you know where we're going here this morning, what we're going to do first of all is look at a number of texts that speak about the topic of homosexuality. Okay, there's more homosexuality in the Bible than we first might have thought. Okay, we're going to look at some of the main ones and understand what the Bible is trying to say and look through some of the common objections that people raise to those texts in particular. Once we look at those texts, what we're going to do is look at objections kind of that our culture offers that you yourself might be thought, maybe someone you've talked to has raised these objections. And we're going to look through those different objections and again, uh, then try to distill what the Bible teaches and what we should get and think through this subject. Right up front off the bat, I think it's best to be clear. Uh, the Bible does teach that homosexuality is a sin. And I want to show you that today from the scriptures. Okay, I don't say that because I'm homophobic. Um, I'm no more afraid of homosexuals than I'm afraid of adulterers or other people who engage in sexual immorality. Those who have sex before marriage. Um, I'm not afraid of those people. And, and Christians aren't afraid of those people. Okay, And so by saying homosexuality is a sin does not mean that you are afraid of homosexuality. So, why do we even care, first of all, of what the Bible even says about homosexuality? Isn't this book 2,000 and more years old? Wasn't it just made up by a few gray-haired men who walked around with dresses and held a staff? Like, we're going to listen to them on this issue? Certainly, we're beyond listening to someone like that. But the reason why you're here this morning is because the Bible was not just made up by a bunch of gray-haired men. The Bible is given to us by God himself. And so the question becomes is, okay, well, how do you even know that the Bible you have is given to you by God? Hasn't it been changed and corrupted down through the generations? And this is a common charge you're going to hear as soon as you start to talk about the Bible. Well, it's been corrupted. It's been changed. You don't even know what it says anymore. Well, it's true. The Bible has been translated many times, and usually that's what people think about corruption and changes. There's lots of translations. But just because you've translated one language or a text from one language into another doesn't mean you've lost its meaning. Uh, We have translations of Homer's Iliad. It doesn't mean we don't know what Homer wrote in the Iliad. Of course we do. Same thing, we have many translations of the Bible. And in fact, we still have the 
Hebrew and the Greek that the Bible was written in. We translate from those original languages. And so the question begins a shift as we think about the issue of why we should even trust what the Bible says about an issue like homosexuality. Okay, if it hasn't been corrupted or changed, then certainly it must be irrelevant today. Why is the Bible even relevant to us? Okay, so you can show me that this text is reliable, but why is it relevant? Well, it's relevant because a man named Jesus of Nazareth walked this earth claiming a dashes claim to be to be the very son of God and to say and he was going to lay down his life and then three days later he was going to raise it up again and he really did die and it wasn't just Christians who said he died but it was Christians and Romans and Jews all those who were who were writing all those who were there in the first century testified to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate he really was dead and he really did get laid in a tomb and three days later that tomb was empty And we have people, hundreds of people, saying that they saw the risen Christ. And this book was written in the lifetime of those eyewitnesses. And Paul, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, you need to go and talk to those eyewitnesses. There's hundreds of them that saw Christ and they're still alive today. Go and speak with them. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ really did happen and they turned the world upside down. Yes, people might die for a lie. We see that today. But people don't die for something that they know to be a lie. These men saw the risen Christ and they gave their lives for that fact. And that's so important because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ establishes the Christian gospel, the Christian good news. It also establishes this word because Jesus says that this is God's word that is unbreakable, that it is inerrant, that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. And so we come with a confidence as we look at the scriptures because Jesus, the son of God, had a confidence in the scriptures as God's word. And we still have his word here today. So it's very relevant because these are God's words. And so the the overriding question to this whole subject, okay, is not what do you think about homosexuality? It's what do you think about Jesus Christ? If you recognize that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that this is his word, that he died and that he rose again, then what he says has all the bearing on all the, all the kinds of issues, not just homosexuality. And so we want to believe him rather than being a slave to our culture and its thinking. Okay, so with that, let's look at what the Bible has to say. The first passage we're going to go to is in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. Page 97, if you have a Bible from here at the church. Leviticus 18. Okay, Leviticus 18 and verse 22 says this. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Okay, we see that's quite clearly in this chapter. In this chapter, the whole chapter is talking about unlawful sexual relations. It talks about adultery, talks about bestiality, talks about incest. It talks about homosexuality as all actions that are unlawful, that are abominations, that are against God's law, against God's plan. Because God's plan in the garden was one man and one woman together for life. Not close relatives, not the wife of another man, uh, not the man and an animal, not two men, not two women. Uh, This Leviticus chapter 18 is reestablishing, establishing what God ordained back in the Garden of Eden. Now, as we look at some of these texts today, I have to handle a number of objections Because with each one of these texts that we're going to, there's a whole litany of authors and videos and other things that are out there trying to tell us that these verses don't mean what they appear to mean at first glance. This verse appears to say homosexuality is a sin, but it doesn't really say that. And and they give a whole list of reasons why. So we have to go through those things because you will hear these different arguments if you haven't heard heard them already. The first I want to deal with looking at this particular text is, okay, well, this verse number 22 that 
says that homosexuality, a man lying with another man as with a woman is an abomination. That was a command given to the Jews under Moses. It's not a command that God is expressing towards all of his creation or to all peoples everywhere and every time and every place. It's just given to the Jews. Okay? What I want to do for you is, is read for you verses 24 to 29. Okay? But he's going to keep reading in that same chapter, Leviticus 18, starting in verse 24. And it says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, these sexual sins that he's just listed. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean. So that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So as we read those verses, the Bible is not saying that this was just something that was specific to the Jews and not to the Canaanites, not to the Amorites or the Amalekites or those around them. God is saying that one of the very reasons why he drove out the inhabitants from the land is not some kind of genocide or holy war. Rather, their sins had reached a point where God had brought judgment. And they were engaging in all of these sexual abominations, including homosexuality, and they were judged by God for it. So it was not just a law given to the Jews, but rather it's understood as being universal for all peoples and all times. Now, another objection that we get commonly from the book of Leviticus is you Christians, you pick and you choose. You're a hypocrite because you wear clothes of mixed fabrics. You eat shellfish and pork. You don't celebrate the festivals and the holy days and the Sabbaths. And those are all commanded in the book of Leviticus. So how can you disregard those and still say this prohibition against homosexuality is binding? Okay? The, the objection that is raised at this point is if you do not obey all the book of Leviticus then how can you condemn me for disregarding this verse? Because you disregard a whole bunch yourself. Okay, how are we supposed to re respond? What does the Bible say to such an objection? Well, we know first off, we can't just throw away the book of Leviticus because Jesus himself and the apostles all quoted from the book of Leviticus and said, you know, you need to be holy as God is holy. And they're quoting that from the book of Leviticus. So certainly they thought that it was binding at least some of it was binding and so the real question that needs to be answered is why would a christian obey some laws in leviticus and not obey others why don't we obey the law of not wearing mixed fibers in our clothing or not eating pork or shellfish or not having keeping all the feasts and the sabbaths and all those holy days why not the assumption is, well, you, you guys just pick and choose. You just, that's your tradition. You just decided to choose some and you decided to throw at others. And so you guys are being hypocrites. This is your personal preference. But it's not at all that question of why we would observe some and not observe others is actually quite simple. We don't practice the dietary laws in Leviticus or mixed fibers or clothing or other kinds of ceremonial laws because God in his own world own word has repealed those laws. We don't have dietary restrictions because in Mark 7, 19, Jesus declared all foods clean. We have in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2, the, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. They got together in Acts 15. Paul wrote the book of Galatians. All of that was to show that the Christian church is not under the Jewish law, the ceremonial law. We don't practice circumcision. We don't abstain from pork or selfish. We don't wear the same beards in the same way, the same clothing. We don't have priests any longer. Even those things are talked about in the book of Leviticus, but the New Testament itself, God's word as it unfolds, makes clear that those things are no longer binding. 
Anybody who's a student of Scripture understands that there are covenants in the Word of God. There's an old covenant primarily and a new covenant. And the new covenant in Jesus Christ that he inaugurated did away with so much of the the ceremonial customs and commands that were in that old covenant. The new covenant abolished those distinctions between Jew and Gentile, and now we are one people. So now we have to ask ourselves, now where in the Bible did God repeal his prohibition against homosexuality? Where in the Bible did God repeal his prohibition against adultery or incest or bestiality? Nowhere. We don't see this sexual ethic in in Leviticus 18 repealed anywhere in Scripture. Rather, we see it reaffirmed in the New Covenant. We see bestiality condemned. We see adultery condemned. We see polygamy condemned. We see homosexuality condemned all in the New Covenant. So we see God's moral law as a constant between Old and New Covenants. But the ceremonial portion of the law has been fulfilled in Christ and has been repealed. I want to look at another passage here in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20. If you can turn over to Leviticus chapter 20, verse number 13. Leviticus twenty thirteen says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So here we see the, the, the seriousness of this offense. Not only is it called an abomination in, 18 in chapters 18 and chapters 20, but here it says both parties involved in this homosexual act shall be put to death. Okay, here's, here's another objection clearly. Now, the Christians do not put homosexual, homosexuals to death today. Do we? We, we, sh- we shouldn't, right? So how can you practice or, or believe this law if you're not going to carry out on its penalty as described here in scripture well the same way we don't reason why we don't kill um, adulterers today the same reason why we don't kill those who have sex before marriage today those are also abominations specified in leviticus and the penalty for those things was death in the church age the church is not given the task of going out on a witch hunt and to kill homosexuals and neither did they have that task in the old testament But rather the church has different requirements or different consequences for those who are engaged in sexual sin in the community. It's excommunication. It's being removal from the membership of the church. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when there is sexual immorality among the congregation of an unrepentant sort and it was ongoing and Paul says, remove that person from among you. Now my guess is those who would disagree with the death penalty for homosexuality in the Old Testament, would also disagree with excommunication in the New Testament. Okay, It doesn't necessarily alleviate the consequences or the severity of it. But there is something that we can learn from this. The thing that we can learn from this command is that the death penalty was only ever commanded for breaking God's moral law. Okay, No one was ever given the death penalty for showing up late to the Sabbath or missing a festival or eating pork or shellfish or wearing clothing with mixed fabrics. No one was ever killed for those things. Those are part of God's ceremonial law. The death penalty was given if you broke God's moral law. We've already seen that God's moral law is unchanging. And so this sin was ranked the same level as, as I said before, incest and adultery and bestiality. I want to jump now quickly to the New Testament. We have a lot of ground to cover here this morning. The next text I want to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Page 955, if you have a Bible from here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read to you verses 9 and 10. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, 
nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now the ESV, uh, the translation that I'm preaching out here this morning, translates two Greek terms as men who practice homosexuality. Now those terms are disputed today between those who disagree with what the Bible says about homosexuality. They say those terms are not talking about homosexual acts. They're talking about um, you know, other things that aren't quite homosexual, homosexual activity. But those two Greek terms um, actually come from the same passage that we just looked at in Leviticus. What Paul does is he takes those two Hebrew terms and whenever he's using, he's using the, a Greek translation of the Old Testament and he takes those two terms about men who, who lie down in a bed with another man and he puts those two terms together and we have this Greek term. It's talking about homosexuality. And, and, and a good understanding, okay, a lot of times what you're going to hear is, but in the Greek it says this, but in the Hebrew it says this, um, but it says this in the original languages. And typically we're just dumbfounded and say, well, I guess uh, that sounds right because, hey, who speaks biblical Greek and Hebrew these days, right? Not very many. And so when people can say those kinds of arguments, a good way to deal with an argument like that if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, okay, is to look online or to look at the different translations you have in home. There's over 20 different English translations. And look at this verse in all those translations. Okay, The English translations were put together by committees of people who know biblical Greek, who are scholars in the language and in the field. Every single one of them translates this verse using language of homosexuality or sodomy. Okay, And so the, la- the meaning of the Greek terms in these verses are clear. We have the same word being used in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. We're not going to look at that text here today. But we see that homosexuality here is listed among other sins of idolatry, of thievery, and adultery. These are all actions and a way of life that are contrary to God's design for men and women, for male and female. There's one other passage I want to turn to you. Uh, is Romans chapter 1. So go backwards to Romans chapter 1. This is one of the lengthiest portions in the Bible talking about homosexuality. So we're going to park here for a little bit. I'm going to start reading here in verse number 18. We're going to read from 18 to 23 to get a bit of the context in this book of Romans. Scripture says, For the wrath of God is is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, so what these verses are saying here, if you're unfamiliar with this section of Scripture, we're going to unpack it this a little bit. What these verses are saying is that the wrath of God, rather His judgment, is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the question becomes, why or who is this directed at? And it says, because people suppress the truth of God. In verse number 18, says, men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, what truth is being suppressed when God's judgment is being meted out? His wrath is being revealed? The truth that's being suppressed is a knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is being suppressed. Now, to suppress the truth means that you know it. It's not unknowable. This passage is so enlightening enlightening because it tells us that everyone knows God. In your heart of hearts, you know God. But rather men in their unrighteousness suppress 
the truth of God. Okay, it's not because of an intellectual failure. It's not because of a lack of evidence. Rather, this text says that people suppress the truth of God in ungodliness because they do not want to honor him or give thanks to him as God. Look at verse number 19 again. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. When we consider the human body, when Janita was playing the piano and sound waves were traveling to your ear and your eardrum was vibrating and that sent electrical signals to your brain and that resonated as something that is beautiful and you go, wow, that sounded great. That testifies to the fact of of a wonder and amazement of God who made all of that. We don't have to think about that. It takes us forever to figure out how that exactly works and to try to replicate that. That awe and wonder is because we recognize God and the things that he has made. We recognize the beauty of mountains and of the solar system. All these things that we can see and witness, bear witness to our creator. So these things, these invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, as it says in verse 20, are clearly perceived in the things that he has made. So they are without excuse. Look at verse number 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So here the Bible says that no one has an excuse for suppressing the truth of God or for denying his existence or for denying the fact that he is the creator and not to determine how we are to live as his creatures. No one has an excuse because God has made himself clear to us. And rather in our natural state, we suppress the truth of God. We suppress God's law. We suppress God's way because we do not want to honor him or give thanks to him. There's a question that is asked to many atheists. And this question goes like this. If I could, based on your own terms, give you enough evidence such that you would believe in God, would you bow down and worship him? The response is always, absolutely not. The God of the Bible is an egotistical maniac, hater. I would never worship him. See, the problem is not a lack of evidence. It's because they do not want to honor God or give thanks to him as God. And that's the state of each and every one of us in our natural state, apart from God's grace in our lives. We suppress the truth of God. And so that answer illustrates this passage here Perfectly. So it says here in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, here we have the first exchange. If you're going through this passage, we have themes of creation. It's talking about how the things of God have been clearly seen since the beginning of creation. We have this talk of not worshiping the creator, but now worshiping his creation, these creeping things and other things, man, uh, money, possessions. We see people worship a variety of things. I'm not just talking about false religions, but even the idea of the things that you get your purpose from, your identity from, your sense of worth or value, the things that you live for. Those are the things that you worship. Because worship just means worth-ship, things that you see as worthy, worthy of your time and of your devotion. And so people exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. If we read now at verse 24 and 25, we will continue. He says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So here we have a text saying that God has now given people up to their impurity. It's in essence saying you reject your creator, you suppress the truth of God 
Well, God's going to give you up to those passions, to that impurity, to that exchange. And so they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And then in verse 26 and 27, he uses homosexuality as an example of this exchange. So in verse 26 and 27, it says this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So here we see how the scripture illustrates the idea that men and women suppress the truth of God because they do not want to honor God or give thanks to him as God. And so in essence, now they worship the creature rather than the creator. So they've taken God down and they've elevated the creation and they've done this exchange. And not only have they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, but now they've exchanged the truth that God has given them for a lie. Where God has given us marriage between one man and one woman for life. The two shall become one flesh. As it says in Genesis 1, as it is Jesus repeated in Matthew 19. People pervert or twist that. And so Paul uses the idea of homosexuality of two women coming together or two men coming together as proof as a demonstration of how the truth of God has been exchanged for a lie. He uses words here of saying unnatural in verse 26 and 27. They exchanged natural relations. They gave up in verse 27, natural relations. Homosexuality strikes at the very core of how God has made men and women. Even if someone denies the truthfulness of the Bible, even if someone denies God and his existence, still must come to the terms that homosexuality is against nature. It's against evolution. Now, I know what people say today. They say, no, there are hundreds of species out there that exhibit homosexual behavior. And in there, they also classify the asexual behavior like plants and stuff in that category, okay? But granted, even if there are some organisms out there or species out there that exhibit homosexual behavior, we're not talking about other species. We're talking about human beings. And every single piece of science, whether that's chemistry, biology, um, everything is going to tell you that for human beings, you need a male and a female. That is what's natural. So even if you ignore the religious arguments and just look at evolutionary theory, homosexuality is against nature. Male and female go together. That's why the Bible says it's against nature. It's against God's design. It also says here that at the end of verse number 27, with men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, what what does that mean? We're going to take a second to think about what this phrase means. What does it mean to receive the due penalty for their error? Now, interpreters of the scriptures don't come to a consensus on what exactly this means. What we do know, okay, what we all agree on is it's not good. All right? It's not good to, to exchange the truth of God for a lie and to be given up to these passions is not going to be good for you, whether personally or as a society. Now, some suggest that what, is mean, what it means by this phrase is the sin itself. God is giving you up. And so that is the penalty. Others suggest that this penalty that is do people who engage in homosexual activity has to do with sexually transmitted diseases like HIV and AIDS or other STDs. Okay? I read recently about a doctor, and this was not just any old doctor. He was employed at a highly respected uh, hospital, part of the Harvard medical faculty. And he said the following. He said, The evidence is irrefutable that behaviors common within the homosexual community are unhealthy and high risk for a host of serious medical consequences, including STDs, HIV and AIDS, anal cancer, hepatitis, parasitic intestinal infections, and psychiatric disorders. 
Life expectancy is significantly, significantly decreased as a result of HIV and AIDS. Complica- complications from other health problems and suicide. This alone should make it reprehensible to the medical community who has an obligation to promote and model healthy behaviors and lifestyles. Now, as this doctor came out with a statement, as you might have guessed, he was fired from his job. This did not go over well. And why was he fired? The reason was he communicated unsolicited views about homosexuality that were offensive to hospital staff. The Center for Disease Control, the big American body that keeps track of different diseases in their own country and beyond, says that more than half, and this is in the United States, more than half of new HIV or AIDS infections are among homosexual men, even though homosexual men represent a tiny portion of the overall society. The U.S. spends $30 billion a year on its HIV and AIDS treatment and research in its own country. Okay, this is not just a a problem in Africa, but it's being spent on huge in the United States. Okay, now even... You can take that for what you will, but I don't think that this is what this patch is talking about, okay? Because not everyone who engages in homosexuality, whether men or women, receives HIV or AIDS or an STD, okay? And we know that heterosexual behaviors are also just as damaging as a homosexual lifestyle. If you practice in adultery or you're promiscuous or you have sex before marriage with multiple partners, all these things are dangerous lifestyles because you'll end up getting a disease or an unwanted pregnancy. And then we have abortion, other things that all flow out of that. So we see that both heterosexual and homosexual behaviors are damaging, but the commonality between all these things and these damaging lifestyles is because all of them are contrary to God's design of one man and one woman married together for life in marriage. And so when we exchange the truth of God for a lie and practice and engage in other behaviors that are not sanctioned and created by God, then we see penalties and consequences for the individual and for the society that endorses it. Now, as we think about this text here in Romans chapter 1, some would say, and not just for Romans, but also for all the scriptures, that the homosexuality that's condemned in the Bible is not the homosexuality we have today. Okay? It's just not the same. The homosexuality condemned in the Bible is homosexuality between a man and a boy. Okay? Pedastery. Um... But we know that's not the case because here it says men committing shameless acts with men. Okay, it's not talking about a man and a boy. All right? And they'll, they'll say other things about, um, well, this passage in Romans 1, it's what it's really suggesting, the unnaturalness of it is not because of homosexuality, but it happens. The unnaturalness is when heterosexual people engage in homosexual activity. That's the unnaturalness that Paul is talking about. Because those who are homosexual, their natural inclination is for someone of the same sex. So it's not unnatural for them. So it's only unnatural if you engage in homosexual activity, if you're attracted to someone of the opposite sex. But again, that meaning is nowhere found in the scriptures, but rather must be imposed upon it. Others suggest, like I mentioned, that the first century in, in Bible times, they knew nothing of what we see today. The monogamous, committed, loving, same-sex relationships that we have today. They say these things weren't prohibited in the Bible because those relationships didn't even exist back then. But as you look at history, this is not a recent phenomenon in terms of these committed relationships. Uh, no matter what kind of homosexual activity, it's contrary to nature. It's contrary to God's resi- design because we had... Examples. We have examples in the Bible times and even before where we have committed homosexual partnerships, relationships that are much the same as what we see today. Yet the Bible does not draw a distinction. It condemns homosexual behavior as a perversion of God's truth and his design for men and women. Now, as I mentioned at the very beginning, these aren't the only texts that talk about homosexuality. This is the only text that we're going to look at here this morning. 
Um, but next week we're going to look at Jesus' words about marriage. Some people say Jesus never spoke about homosexuality, but he defined marriage. He defined the bounds of sexual intimacy as between one man and one woman. Uh, we didn't talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. We didn't talk about the men of Gibeah. We didn't talk about the male cult prostitutes that are all over the Old Testament. Uh, so this is a theme that occurs throughout the scriptures. And the Bible treats such behavior as sin. Now I want to consider... Uh, some common objections that we're going to hear in our society today, okay? That you might have yourself. The first one is, isn't all we need is love? Why are Christians against the fact of two people just loving each other? Why are you so judgmental? Why are you so critical? What does it matter to you if two people love one another? Shouldn't you be all for love? God is love after all. The assumption here is that Christians, we're unloving and we're intolerant, but God is loving and God is tolerant. Okay? Now, the question that we must answer is what is love? Okay, what does it mean to love? How should we love like God loves? Okay, if we can agree on that, to love like God loves, let's start there. How does God love? How does God, the Creator, define love? Well, it says in 1 John 4 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. John 3.16, what does that say? God so loved the world, or he loved the world in this way, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how God loves the world, by rescuing sinners. We're sinners. God does not love the world by redefining sin, Rather, he loves the world by sending a savior to die for sin so that we might be free, that we might be forgiven. That's the true love. Love is what God did in sending Christ to be our substitute on the cross. Love is what we do when we keep God's commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word to people who need it. Love is treating each other with kindness and patience. Love is disciplining and pleading with a wayward sinner. Love is calling rebellious Christians to repentance. Those are all statements drawn from the scriptures, but defining to us what love is. And so we should love as God loves. God's love never, not according to any verse in the Bible, ever makes sin acceptable ever makes sexual sin acceptable. Never. God's love never does that. Rather, God's love says that there is wondrous forgiveness available for that sexual sin. If you would turn from it and put your faith and trust in me. That's the hope. And that's the love that God declares to us. Another objection besides the loved one is, isn't the church and aren't Christians just really inconsistent Aren't you guys all hung up on pride, lying and jealousy and gluttony? Why aren't you preaching on those sins? Huh? How many fat preachers have you seen? Why don't you poke the finger at there and tell them that they should stop being a glutton? Okay? You probably heard those. A few things that we should consider when we hear an objection about that. First thing is that the Bible does address those sins as sin and it does address homosexuality and as a church as a preacher of God's word we are called to declare the whole counsel of God's word which includes those passages that talk about homosexuality I would be doing you a disservice if I would ignore sections of scripture and not give you the whole counsel of God the second thing that we can think about is that our culture has made this an issue our culture is pressing us to conform pressing us to respond pressing us to get in line to say the same slogans. And so how are we going to respond to those as Christians? We must turn to the word of God if we were to think through these things. The third thing that we must think of, if you were to come and listen to every sermon on Sundays here, you realize that homosexuality is not spoken about a whole lot. Rather, it is those sins of the heart. It's that lack of love and lack of devotion. It's that pride that's in each and every one of us that gets hammered on week after week after week because that is the root of our sin. 
and of our lack of love for God and for others. And so you're going to hear those things pounded, not ignored. And lastly, neither the Bible nor the true church can ever embrace sexual sin as acceptable. And that's okay. So why do we take a stand of what the Bible says about homosexuality? Why would we have a Sunday like this? Is because the Bible never condones such behavior and the church should never condone such behavior. We cannot, as a church, embrace lying or adultery or gluttony and we cannot embrace homosexuality as normal. It's a, they're all sin and they all must be spoken about and we must call all sinners to repent and to seek forgiveness from Christ. So churches and Christians who embrace homosexuality are not showing love. They're not showing love. They're not showing the love of God. Rather, they they think that they're showing love, but they're actually confirming someone in their sin. It's the same thing if we as a church were silent about adultery, silent about the damage of divorce and say, well, these things are okay. Everything's accepted. We're doing disservice to families, to men and to women. We need to call sin, sin, and offer the forgiveness and love that God offers in his word. Another objection, okay? Not that, okay, we got to have lots of love. We got to be consistent. Another objection you hear a lot is, but I'm born this way, okay? I'm born with these desires. This is, this is the way God has made me. So surely God would not want me to, to deny myself or God would not say that what I'm doing is wrong. He made me this way. Well, even if we grant that homosexuals are born that way, which is a disputed subject in its own right, but even if we grant that, there are many impulses that everyone is born with. Some we choose to suppress and others we choose to celebrate and say that they're okay. People are born with the impulse to be angry when someone has crossed you, to lie, to cheat, to be unfaithful, to quit. But that does not excuse our behavior when we act on these impulses, okay? For our children, we do not teach them to lie and to steal, uh, to take toys and to fight and to bite and do these kind of things that the kids do. They, they do those in their nature. Now, we're not saying, oh, well, Nathan, he was born a liar, so I guess I'll just have to accept his lying. Not at all, okay? We're born with certain desires and inclinations, but not all of them are good. And so how do we know which one of the inclinations we're born with are good and acceptable and which ones are not? Okay? It's not from within. You do not get your sense of oughtness or acceptable or approval from within yourself. Rather, it's your society or God who is going to give you a grid in order to interpret your desires and your feelings. Consider this example. An Anglo-Saxon warrior, okay, in the year 800. He's got two raging impulses inside of him. The first is anger. He takes great joy in killing someone who disagrees with him, clubbing them, beating them to death. And in his culture, in that Anglo-Saxon culture, he says, yeah, that's me. I'm a warrior, okay? Now, the second feeling he has, just as strong, just as hard to control is same-sex desire. Now, in that culture, he's going to say, that's not me. That's not who I am. And he's going to live his life suppressing that reality. Now, take that same two impulses to a young man here in Calgary today who has that the same two desires, just as strong, the desire to be angry with anyone who crosses him. What's he going to say? That's not me. I'm not an angry person. And he perhaps is going to go seek out anger management or therapy or or find a way to fix this because he's not an angry person. But when he has that same same sex desire that that Anglo-Saxon warrior had, he's going to say, that's me. That's who I am. That's who I'm going to identify myself as. And so we see it's not ourselves who determine who we're going to be. We're going to place an interpretive grid that given to us by our society or given to us by God. And so what we must understand is that God's way is better than the 
culture's way because he is the creator. He has designed male and female and marriage for human flourishing. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay? And he says, if you engage in these kinds of activities, if you suppress the truth of God and engage in these things, you will receive a penalty. God is being, he's in judgment by giving people up to these desires that are contrary to his design. So I'm born this way is not a true or objection that is going to hold much weight. The last objection we'll look at is that us Christians are seen as being on the wrong side of history. Okay? And what I mean by that is that Christians in the past were against the sun being at the center of our galaxy. Christians in the past were for slavery and were against the abolition of slavery. Just like then, you Christians now are behind the times. Just give it a few decades and you'll realize that you try to defend these things from the Bible, but it's just like a geocentric universe. It's just like slavery. You're going to turn. You're going to change your mind. You're on the wrong side of history. You might as well toe the line right now. Okay? Get with the times. Now, as you think of this objection, there is a lot of misinformation on this one. Okay? First of all, it assumes a progressive view of history. What I mean by that is the things that are happening now, the things that are in progress, things that are neat and new, uh, that's the way of the future. That's the way the world is going. And that's a good thing. The world's going to be there. But the problem is that does not work either in the present or in the past. In fact, in the past, the beginning of the, the 20th century, after Darwin's theories began to go, work through the intellectual world, there were many um, academics, intellectuals, who were acting on that theory and thought, according to Darwin's theories, we need to start having selective breeding. We need to do mass sterilization. We need to practice more abortions. We need to get rid of this inferior stock of these races that are subhuman, according to us white people. That was the progressives in that day. We see just how wrong-headed that was. Okay? So just because something is new and neat does not mean that's the way the world's going and that's the next and greatest thing. In fact, there are many things that are trends today that you are flatly against. Even if you're for homosexuality, you're flatly against other things. Are you against the rise of capitalism, the wealth getting wealthier and the poor getting poorer? Are you against that trend? What about the rise of violent Islam? What about the rise of fossil fuel consumption and environmental damage and all those kinds of developments? We understand that just because something is trending today, doesn't mean it's a good thing and that everyone should jump on the bandwagon. Second, when we think of this idea of the sun being the center of the uh, galaxy as opposed to some people in the past apparently said that the earth is the center and they used the Bible to to prove that, that's a, a bit of a misnomer. Okay, it wasn't Bible interpreters that said the sun is at the center of our I mean, sorry, the earth at the center of our galaxy. Because you know what the Bible verses that someone would go to to show that the earth's at the center? They'd point to things like sunrise and sunset. You see? They thought the earth was at the center because the sun is rising and the sun is setting. But you use the same words today. And we don't mean by it that we're at the center and that the sun is coming around us. Okay? Nobody today says, boy, that's a nice earth rotation. Okay? <laughs> Even though that's technically accurate, we don't speak in those terms. So the Bible is not trying to argue for a geocentric universe. And in fact, it wasn't even the Christians who came up with such an idea. It was popularized by Ptolemy. It was based on Aristotle's ideas. And then famous scientists Copernicus and Galileo are seen as reversing that and enlightening us the fact that the sun is really at the center of our galaxy. Now, it's said that Copernicus and Galileo were excommunicated from the church for coming up with these crazy hairball scientific ideas because they disagreed with what the Bible said. But again, that's a fallacy. It's not true. Uh, Copernicus's work was dedicated to the Pope and was circulated freely among the church. It was the Aristotelian, those followers of Aristotle, who thought that his theories were unscientific. And Galileo, he was initially lauded by cardinals and popes. He was even honored by the current Pope, Pope Urban VIII. Now, his relationship with the Pope did sour, okay? 
And Galileo tells us in his own writings why that happened. In one of his stories, he puts Pope Urban's argument in the mouth of the story's simpleton. And Pope Urban didn't like that. And so Galileo was in his bad books. And that is why Galileo said that he was in the bad books of the Pope. Not for his scientific theories. It's because he took a jab at the Pope. And so there's so much misinformation on this. It wasn't his science that got him into trouble, but rather his story. So it's simply wrong to suggest that Galileo was fighting against Bible interpreters over this issue of a heliocentric or geocentric galaxy. Now, with regard to slavery, there's also a lot of misinformation about slavery. Okay, weren't Christians defending slavery from the Bible? And it is true. A lot of Christians, especially in the southern states, were defending the practice of slavery from the scriptures. But this is no means a comparison to homosexuality because this was not a universal understanding of the Bible. In fact, we have writings from the 7th and 9th centuries that talk about how from the scriptures, slavery is a sin. We have Aquinas, a very famous scholar in the 13th century, the 1200s, and he says that slavery from the Bible is a sin. And uh, popes at his time and following adopted his same views that slavery is a sin. We have Puritans coming over. As early as 1700, we have Puritans writing abolitionist tracts saying that slavery is a sin. Abolition was carried out by Christians. Okay? It has never been the universal position of the church that slavery has is acceptable and we should practice it. Never. It's so much different than homosexuality. Homosexuality, it has been universally understood from the early church until only very recently that homosexuality is a sin. So again, there's not just a fair comparison between those two things. They're empty of substance. So we ought not to fear about being on the wrong side of history. We should rather fear about being on the wrong side of God's word and the wrong side of God's holy church and of God's history, not what our world deems as historical. Now I want to finish on this one point here in Romans chapter one. If you look with me, in verses 16 and 17. We saw in verse 18 how the wrath of God was being revealed. And I want to leave thinking about verse 16 and 17 when Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So as opposed to the wrath of God being revealed, because people exchange the truth of God for a lie, here we have in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the righteousness of God being revealed. The right standing that we all as sinners need to stand before God is being revealed. Revealed in what? Revealed in the gospel. The good news, that historical proclamation of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for sinners. That's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of that good news. And we as Christians cannot be ashamed of the gospel. We cannot be silenced by giving the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay? It doesn't mean that we go out there and we start pointing people at fingers, everyone's different sin that they have. Rather, we go out there as the scriptures tell us to do, to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the righteousness of of God, rather than his wrath, is being revealed in the gospel, that that there is forgiveness of sins being proclaimed. It doesn't matter what kind of sexual sin you have engaged in in the past. There is forgiveness because it's not your merit. It's not the fact that you have changed your life around. It's not the fact that you have been really sorry and you've shown contrition for your sin that God is going to forgive you. It's because of the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ has died and he has merited that righteousness that you need to stand before God. And so we come and we proclaim that good news and we are not ashamed of it because we need that same good news. Even if you have never struggled with same-sex desires in your life, you have a whole litany of other sins that you've struggled with and you're still struggling with. And you need the gospel just the same. You are just as destitute. You are just as much of a sinner, just as much in need of God's grace as those who are engaged in the sins of homosexuality or adultery or incest or the other sexual sins that the scriptures delineate. 
And so we must remember that not only is the wrath of God being revealed, but the righteousness of God is being revealed through the gospel. No one is unforgivable, okay? Homosexuality is not the unforgivable sin. It's always talked about with other sins like adultery, okay? Homosexuality is no more unforgivable than the sin of adultery is or promiscuous lifestyle or sex before marriage, these kinds of sins, okay? It's no more unforgivable than those other sins. The solution to this dilemma to this question of what do we do with homosexuality is not to call evil good and good evil, but to humble ourselves and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us are going to stand before God one day in judgment. Every single one of us. We cannot escape it. You need to sign the peace treaty that God has offered through the Lord Jesus Christ in this life, in this time. God has defined the terms whereby we might be at peace with him. And the question you might you have to ask yourself is, do you know the forgiveness of God for your sin, for your pride, for your arrogance, for your sexual sins? Do you know the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't, then you need to reflect on this good news and need to speak with someone who can talk to you further about this good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and pray that he would save you, that he would change your heart. The Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be rescued from their sin. Now, what do I want you to leave from this here this morning? Okay, we have a, a variety of different people listening here, so I want to address different groups. If you're struggling with same-sex attraction, okay, if you know someone who does, someone close to you, you may be wondering, does God want me to deny myself? Does God want them to deny themselves? Okay? This sounds like it's, it's an impossible thing for me to deny who I am. But when we realize the call to be a Christian in Mark 8, 34, if anyone is going to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Each and every one of us are called to deny ourselves. To say, this is not who I want to be. I want to live for Jesus Christ. He is the center of my life. I am not the center. And so we want to live for him and do what he says. We die to ourselves, the scripture says, so that we might gain life. The call to be a Christian is a call to deny yourself. It's a call to die and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, this is what God is calling for each and every one of, one of us to deny ourselves. And if you do struggle with same-sex attraction or know someone who does, there is hope. 1 Corinthians 6, we read verses 9 and 10. The very next verse says, and such were some of you. Did you hear that? And such were some of you. That is, there were some of the Corinthians who were engaged in these very practices and no longer. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person who struggles with same-sex attraction, when they come to Christ, those desires are going to go away. What we see is, for the most part, they don't. It's going to be a lifelong struggle. And I would encourage you, if you want to, for yourself or to counsel someone else, to come back next week as we talk about singleness and marriage and other issues related to that struggle. To the Christian, I want to say this. As we've seen, the Bible is clear. And so should we be as followers of Christ and of God. Our goal, again, is not to condemn, but to redeem by proclaiming the gospel and by offering God's message of forgiveness and of new life okay if you claim to be a christian and you embrace homosexuality as something that is normal and acceptable in our society today then it's not you know this is difficult to say but according to the word of god you've you've abandoned the faith you've you've abandoned the commands of god that he has given to us this deposit of faith you have given yourself to that same suppression of truth that God says his wrath is being revealed. His judgment is being carried out. We must judge with right judgment, with God's judgment. So we cannot embrace what God has forbidden. I cannot be a Christian who embraces adultery and other promiscuous lifestyles any more than I could be a Christian that embraces homosexuality. Those are all sexual sins that God 
condemns. But rather, to those who are affected by adultery, those who are affected by homosexuality, the offer is not to say your sin is okay, but rather to say your sin can be forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. To say to deny yourself, take up your cross and to follow Jesus Christ. Not to celebrate your sin, but deal with it through confession, through repentance and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you claim to be, and this is a common one, claiming to be a Christian, and but personally, personally disagreeing with homosexuality, but publicly being okay with it. Okay, this is a position of many, even in the, the Roman Catholic Church, many take on a public stand that you can personally disagree, but you shouldn't have the authority to say in someone else's life whether this is wrong or right for them. Okay, there's a few questions I want to ask. If you have this opinion that you personally disagree, but you think other people should do what they want to do, okay? Question for you. Are you more loving than God? Are you more tolerant than God? Are you more accepting than God? That's that's the image that we're putting forward here because God has condemned these things and he offers grace and forgiveness, not approval. And so we end up trying to pit ourselves against God. You have to ask yourself, are you more for equality than God is? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the good news to convert sinners? It's a capitulation to our culture that says that you can have an opinion as long as you don't share it to anyone else. That's one of the religious tenets of our culture today. There is truth, and truth is God's reality, and as a Christian, we must be people of the truth. And I pray that God would open our eyes to the truth and open those eyes of those people around us that we have opportunity to speak about this important issue. Let's pray.